This evening, right now, we're going to bring to a close the Gospel of John after a nearly 14-month journey together. And I, for one, will be forever changed since walking through this for this long of a time, living in these texts week after week after week. And even though we're bringing it to a close, it still feels like we're just scratching the surface of understanding who Jesus was and is, what he did and what he does. It's it's awesome. I guess that's why we don't stop coming to church after you're done preaching through a book. Um, we end our time in John appropriately, I think, because we're ending in, in uh, a chapter that we skipped earlier on in the year, John 17. So we've covered every single chapter except 17. Now we're coming back to it. And the reason I think that's appropriate is because John 17, as I've been saying now for week after week, is one of the most intimate chapters in all of John's gospel, if not all of Scripture. The reason I say that is because John 17 is a prayer. And it's not just a prayer, but it's a prayer of Jesus praying directly to his Father. When we hear this prayer, we hear what's nearest and dearest to Jesus' heart. And not to, I, I don't think that Jesus ever prayed frivolously in his life. Like whatever he prayed in his life, I'm sure he meant it 100%. But just to add emphasis on this, remember that he prays this prayer in John 17 hours before he's getting arrested. And maybe less than a day before he knew he was going to the cross. So whatever he's praying in this prayer is just right on the surface of what he's on about, what he cares about most. In the last two weeks, we've been in John 17, and I just want to recap three of the main points that we've had up to this point. Number one, one of the things closest to Jesus' heart is the glory of the Father. That the Father's glory would be revealed in the world. That means that the Father's character, who He really is, would be known to every man, woman, and child on earth. Number two, one of the main reasons that Jesus wants the Father's character or glory to be known around the world is because of um, the fact that we come to salvation by knowing God. By knowing God. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus the Christ whom you have sent. Number three, it's part of the Father's plan and Jesus' desire that you and I who follow Jesus would be part of the rescue mission. And last week we, we focused on the fact that Jesus takes us, uh, he says we're no longer of the world. We're changed now that we follow him. But we are left in the world to have an impact and to make a difference. Alright? So by the time we finish tonight, we're going to see that Jesus makes a fourth plea. A fourth passionate plea on our behalf. And this is a plea that we're going to have to respond to. And we cannot succeed in living out unless we learn to do one thing. Dance with God. Sound impossible? Let's find out. Would you stand with me as we read John's Gospel, the 17th chapter, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. 
The glory which I've given, uh, which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as I have loved you. Did you hear that? Love them even as I have loved you. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me will be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given to me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Jesus, these are amazing words. Thank you for praying these things for us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to to not only understand what you're praying here, but to live differently because of it. Amen. You may be seated. So before we really dig into the text, I want to point out the importance of verse 20. Verse 20 is the one uh, where Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now here's why verse 20 is so important. Throughout John's Gospel, we've come to see that Jesus is more than just a man. That he is the sent one of God. In fact, he is God on earth. God incarnate. And for that perspective, we could watch Jesus' behavior and read about his teachings, and we could formulate a pretty good standard of living. We could say, Jesus lived like this, he said these things, I should follow these teachings, and I should live like him, and that would be fine and dandy. But what verse 20 does is personalizes everything. So imagine yourself on an archaeological dig, and you're digging, and what you find is an old letter. Maybe it's a journal entry that Jesus wrote, and he's journaling to the Father, okay? It would be such an intimate letter, a window into Jesus' personal thoughts. That's pretty much what we have in John 17 without verse 20. Jesus praying directly to the Father. But imagine yourself now, you're on that same archaeological dig. You find the letter... And instead of it just being this general letter to the Father, it has your name in it. That's exactly what verse 20 does for this prayer in John 17. This prayer is not, Jesus is not just praying this for the 11 disciples who are remaining. It's for every single one of us who would believe after them according to their word. It's for every single person who will believe possibly because of your word. Your testimony. It's awesome. So what does Jesus desire for us? That we may be one. That we may be one. Unified. That his followers, his disciples, you and I, would be together. Not only that we'd be one, but that Jesus, as Jesus is in the Father, as he relies and trusts and obeys the Father and loves the Father, so we would be in such intimate relationship with that God as well. 
And notice that Jesus' motivation for this whole prayer is mission. Big surprise, right? He wants the Father to be glorified so that the world would come to know him and be saved. Jesus says, when you guys are unified, when you, the church, are together, it makes a statement to the world that the Father sent the Son. When we're unified, it gives glory to the Father. And it makes a statement, and, and the world can come to know the Father through that statement. It's for salvation. So Jesus calls us to be one, to be undivided. And what, what on earth does that even begin to look like? I mean, there are, what, six billion people and growing everyday people in the world? What does unity in the church look like? Well, to put some structure on it, I want to talk about unity in three spheres. I want to talk about it in our local church, this one right here. I want to talk about it in, in the context of local churches, unity among local churches. So like in Bellingham, there are a hundred, over 100 churches, and how do we have unity in there? And then I want to talk about it briefly uh, worldwide, okay? So just to give us some structure. So Leonard Street's Covenant Church is a local church. Fountain Community Church, the people that own this building uh, that let us worship here, they're a local church. Right down the street, St. Paul's Episcopal Church is a local church. Bellingham Covenant Church out on Bakerbrew is a local church. Local churches are made up of followers of Jesus drawn together by the Holy Spirit. And we're called together to love Jesus, to worship Him, to serve one another, to love one another, and to serve our community in Jesus' name. That's what local churches do. The church is a worldwide communion of Jesus' followers, and there are many denominations and sects. But first and foremost, before all of that hoopla... We're called to live out our faith in a local context with a community of people. Even in the first century, the early church was made up of local churches. There was the church in Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and several ch local churches in Jerusalem and Rome. People met in homes, and oftentimes in the homes of, uh, of wealthy church members, they had room for between 20 and 120 people. Some of the bigger villas, they, they estimate you could fit at most 200 to 225 people. That would have been your biggest local church. Uh, and these houses, uh, think Spanish style, if you haven't been to the Mediterranean, you've got uh, maybe a square-shaped home, and in the middle is a courtyard, and so oftentimes they would meet out in the courtyards. So uh, a wealthy person's home, you could fit you know, maybe up to two. 200 people. So this is how uh, these churches would begin to meet. There were no church buildings for hundreds of years uh, after Jesus. And even among these early gatherings, there's disputes, right? There's arguments. Why? Because the church is made up of people. Uh, basically, we're all recovering sinners, right? And we all haven't kicked the habit yet all the time. So uh, that's, that's why there's these arguments. There's arguments in the early church about who would serve and who would teach and the role of women and what clothes you could wear and how long your hair could be for men and women. Uh, there were complaints to the leaders about this group not getting enough attention or this group being favored. There were petty factions that would divide because they liked this preacher better than that one and this leader was stronger than that one. In fact, many of the letters we have in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul are in part addressing many of these arguments. Just read 1 Corinthians. It's over and over and over again just addressing arguments. 
sometimes the Apostle Paul would give general principles, okay? So like in Romans 14, he speaks of the great freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Now, here's one of the issues. Some of the Christians were okay going to these parties where meat was sacrificed to idols. And some Christians were saying, you know, I'm free in Christ to eat this meat because I know that there's only one true God. And these false gods, they're not even real, so I'm going to eat this steak because it, it tastes good. And I'm going to party down with these people. Then there was another group of Christians who really, maybe they had just come out of pagan worship and it was still too close to their heart and say, you know, I don't even want to touch this stuff. And so instead of Paul just making some arbitrary black and white law that applied to everybody, he left it open to people's conscience. And he, this is the question that he, he raises, basically. What's the most loving thing to do? If you're at dinner and you have all this freedom in Christ and your friend is greatly offended that you're eating meat sacrificed to idols, what's the loving thing to do? Well, maybe you skip that course of the meal when you're with that friend. Okay? So he would give general rules. How might this apply to us? You know, how, how might we give deference to somebody else on an issue of freedom? Jesus and Paul and the other apostolic witnesses did not give us a blueprint for things like music style or which translation of the Bible to use. I guess Nancy just brings them all out so then everyone can complain. <laughs> um, it doesn't talk about you know um, how long sermons should be or not be or how many candles or whether or not to have candles. We have freedom in these areas and we should be able to voice our opinions to one another with respect while also maintaining unity and love, okay? This is one way we can walk through this. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay? The Apostle Paul also gave really specific examples for maintaining unity. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, there are apparently some Christians who are taking others to court. Okay, over petty crimes and things. I can almost see the veins popping out in Paul's head when he's writing this letter. And I'm paraphrasing here. But basically he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Is there not one wise person in your local congregation who can settle these disputes? You have the Holy Spirit and you're taking your petty issues to a pagan court. For them to decide your fate. He said, this is not good. This is not showing a face of unity in the church. This is not you relying on the spirit of the living God. First of all, he says, settle these matters in house. Settle these matters in house. And second, in the grand scheme of things, hey, why not be wronged? I mean, we do not want to hear this. We do not want to hear this, especially when we're the ones being wronged, right? But Paul says, like, for the sake of unity... Why not just be wrong sometimes? Guess what? In the end, God's going to be the judge. He's a perfect judge. So you may not even get your justice while you're alive. It's going to happen. Something's going to happen. But for the sake of unity, for the Christ who died for us, why not just be willing to be wrong? i got to confess. I mean, that's hard, right? And I'm not saying this like I'm good at it. I'm just saying it because Scripture says it. And that's what I'm supposed to teach is the truth, not what I like to teach. Uh, I confess that's a tough one. But it's there, and this is one of the ways that we maintain unity. Now, I hope we don't have any legal disputes in our congregation, but it could happen, and it probably will, in, you know, 50 to 100 years that we're, at least we're going to be here, right? We're on a 100-year plan. 
minimum. <laughs> uh, more realistically, though, instead of trying to find problems and, and make up examples, like I was trying to think, you know, how do I even apply this in this message? Let's, let's go on the attack and, and think positively. So ask yourself this question. How might the world see Lettered Street's Covenant Church more unified because of the way I treat others and because of the way I talk about others in my local church? That'd be a big step. That'd be a big step. When you complain about somebody else in your church, in your local church, when you complain about that person to someone, and it's not in the spirit of, I'm really seeking your advice and confidence, it's just airing the dirty laundry, that does no good for unity. It does no good for that person who is made in God's image. No, it does no good for you who are made in God's image. That is not dignified. We're called for more than that. Paul understood the heart of Jesus. That unity is a witness to the Father's glory. Unity is a witness to the Father's glory. I, I don't need to remind you, but I need to remind myself. That's why we're here. That is our purpose, is to bring glory to God. So if unity brings glory to God, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's just really tough to live out, right? Unity brings glory to God. He understood that Jesus set the church apart from the world, and that means that we should strive for holiness. Treating others with love and respect. Earlier on, Nancy read Colossians 3, 12 through 17. If you want to grow in loving other people, memorize Colossians 3, 12 through 17. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you start praying that over as a prayer for yourself, that you take on those qualities, you'll start to see those qualities emerge. And that's just not pop psychology. That's the Spirit taking the Word and making it come alive in you. You know, we talk about the living Word sometimes. The Word comes alive in us as we internalize it, as we give the Spirit something to work with inside. Here's one caveat I want to talk about, because we just talked about taking people to court and church. And I, I want to make it clear that unity does not mean that we tolerate all kinds of evil in the camp, in the church. So again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with this issue, and whereas this man is actually sleeping with his father's wife. And it's not his mom, it's probably like his, his stepmom or something like that. But, I mean, all kinds of crazy, right? Um, yeah, you just can't make stuff like this up. The point being, this man is committing serious sexual infidelity. He's not married to this woman, so there's a biggie right there. Second of all, he's help he's complicit in this woman breaking the bonds of marriage and third he's like totally dishonoring his dad and he's still coming to worship and just like you know things are kind of weird and, and there's probably factions going on in the church and Paul if he had hair if a lot of people think he was bald but I, uh, it, he wouldn't anymore he's probably just pulling out saying what is going on you can't just let this happen it's destroying the unity of the church the integrity what does the world see I mean, did you know that one of the big attractions to the Roman world, one of the main reasons people became Christian in the first place was high moral standards. A lot of the mystery religions, the pagan religions, people would go into these clubs. It was kind of like um, these, these clubs where you have a secret handshake or something. One of the attractions for those were high moral standards. Because, I mean, Rome was screwed up. I mean, our 
culture can you can say it's screwed up too but like I mean Rome you're going to these parties orgies binging and so there's this natural law I think at work in us and one of the attractive things for people was these mystery religions where you'd have these higher moral standards Christianity had awesome standards and so it, it attracted a lot of people to the faith and Paul's watching this happen in the Corinthian church saying you, you can't just let this happen in your in your congregation. It will rip it apart. It gives the Lord a bad name. And it's not good. It's not good for that the man who's committing the sin. And it's not good for the woman. Because the scriptures say in Hebrews that God disciplines those he loves. You see, and sometimes it's the most loving thing to do to not be tolerant. Tolerance is not love. That's a lie. All right? Sometimes the loving thing to do is say, brother, you screwed up, and you're not repenting of this. You, you got to go, and you always discipline for restoration. You never kick somebody out. Nobody is outside the redeeming grace of Christ. He can forgive anything, and we should be ready in an instant to forgive anything. But there's somebody like that in the church, like in 1 Corinthians, where they're totally not repenting of this. That's an issue. And sometimes we need to be the church and say, I'm sorry, brother, this isn't working out. Until you can admit that you've done something wrong here and break off this relationship, we're going to have to ask you not to, uh, not to participate, right? We, oh, we do not like that in our culture. That's even tough to say. We're really doing a disservice to real unity if we don't live that way. You can't just have unity based on tolerance. Notice also, we're only, only to judge followers of Jesus. We are not to be judgmental of people who don't claim Jesus as Lord. Why? Because they have not submitted to his authority. The definition of the world is society organizing itself without God. So we can't just hold other people to godly standards, right? This is a line I think the church needs to learn. Because a lot of times the church comes off as judgmental. We should not be judging outside the church. And we can speak up and say certain issues are wrong, and I think we have a voice there, but, but we do not cast judgment on people. That's God's thing. Once we begin to make a commitment to one another and begin to follow Jesus, then we can speak into each other's lives and say, you know, you're falling short of your commitment to follow Jesus when you cheat on your taxes or when you're having this illicit relationship or whatnot. Okay. just want to make that clear. It seems difficult to have true unity in each local church, right? In each, like, lettered streets, fountain. What about unity among other churches? What about unity among other denominations, right? In Bellingham, there are hundreds of local churches. And so what could unity look like in Bellingham with all of these churches? First of all, I want to say, I don't think it's a bad thing that there are lots of local churches. Having many local churches does not at all, I think, portray disunity. By having smaller, many smaller local churches, you give more people an opportunity to serve God in more significant ways than, say, if we all got every Christian together and every Sunday we met in, like, a quest field type env environment where there's maybe, what, like a thousand people who do all the stuff and everyone else just comes and sits. All right. So... How can local churches live in unity? We can worship together, and we can work together. Those are 
some starters, right? We can worship together and work together. Look at the building we're in today. We are here because Fountain Community Church is generous and allowing us to meet in their space. This, I love this relationship because this, this shows, this is an expression of unity. Two completely different denominations, different music styles, different preaching styles. But I tell you what, Rick and I, we get together, Pastor Rick and I get together every month, uh, at minimum, we have coffee, we pray together, we send emails to each other to know how to pray for each other throughout the month. There's unity going on, and it's not because we see everything the same way, but because we have the same Jesus, the same Lord. All right? So that's one way that we can have unity. Consider how Bellingham Covenant Church sent out people, many of you, and resources to plant this church in the middle of a recession. Okay? Not because there's some rift, but because of mission. Because of mission. This is a show of unity. Or what about how we partner with other ministries like Agape House or, or Lighthouse Mission? Um, we sometimes have preachers speak here from other churches, and you know that I preach oftentimes in other local churches. Um, we're walking together with other people. I think that this is um, one of the ways that we can be unified in local churches. Christmas Eve, joint service with Fountain Community Church right here. Having lots of local churches is not a bad thing unless the reason you have lots of local churches is because Christians aren't living in unity. Okay? So you see what often happens is, oh, this church isn't getting along, so then, well, let's split and we'll have two more local churches, right? This is not in the idea of God. And the problem is that we're all sinful. What happens is what I just recently termed the fanatic effect. Okay, check with me on this. Take baseball. Great sport, right? Probably millions of fans in, uh, in the United States. Each fan, maybe except for Mariner fans, thinks that their team is the best. And some of these groups, like with long history, like Red Sox and Yankees, they have extremely deep rivalries with each other. And I had the misfortune of going uh, with my family to the Mariners game on Friday night to see them get dismantled by the Yankees. There were almost as many Yankee fans as Mariner fans. Right behind me, this group of obnoxious guys, Yankee fans, and they were calling out all these names for our Mariner bullpen, like um, Brandon Minor League and uh, David Yardsma, because he gives up all these home runs in the ninth and we lose games. And then A-Rod gets up to bat, and like tens of thousands of people boo a guy like who's been gone over a decade. And it's just this deep you know, rivalry for people, and that is fine in sports. It makes it kind of fun, right? Especially when your team's crummy. But this fanatic effect carries over sometimes into the way we think about church. We like to think our church is something special. We can get prideful, and that breaks down unity, right? So how could we love our local church? And I think we should love our local church and still maintain unity with others. One thing I think we can all do is to speak lovingly about other churches where we can. Every single local church is flawed in some way, all right? You guys have to put up with me. That's one of the flaws. So a lot of times these flaws are things that we should be talking about in-house, and not complaining about this church says that and this church says that. No, I can't stand them because they do this. Just keep it in-house. 
because that breaks down unity. Here's a good rule of thumb. When the person or people you're talking about, um, when you're talking about them, if they were there with you, would they agree? Would they agree with what you're saying? Okay. So I'm having a conversation about genie to somebody else. I need to talk about genie as if she's right there. Would I say the same things? Would she agree with how I'm portraying her position? This is how we should talk about other local churches. All right. Um, you know. It, if churches do some messed up things. We all churches do messed up things, by the way. We just haven't been around long enough to mess up too bad, but we will. And I hope that other believers would have our back, you know, and that we would be humble enough to change. But think about that. Whenever you're talking about somebody or another church, would if their leader that you're talking about was right beside you, would you say the same things? Would they agree with your representation of their position? So some of these ways that we can maintain unity and grow in unity with other local churches and the church abroad would be to work together, to worship together, to speak well of one another. But none of those things should ever be our motivation for unity. And this is really important. It is Jesus who is our motivation. Jesus is the only one who actually died for all of us, right? He is the center of our faith. Jesus calls us to unity for the glory of the Father. See, oftentimes churches seek a lowest common denominator in order just to get along. And sometimes, unfortunately, churches compromise too far and take Jesus out of the equation. Some churches will compromise and say, you know, it doesn't really matter if you think that Jesus is, is Lord God or not, or if the scriptures are, are reliable. So, you know what, let's just get together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but Jesus isn't all that important. Once we take Jesus out of the middle, we really cease to be the church. We, we could be called a lot of other things, but we wouldn't be the church anymore. So unity is awesome. It's what God calls us to, but not at the cost of Jesus, right? Like this, the reason we are the church is Jesus. One day, the worldwide church is going to be unified, and it seems, right, impossible. You've got Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and like 50,000, I'm not exaggerating, 50,000 Protestant denominations. But that doesn't excuse every generation from striving and praying with Jesus for unity, okay? Jesus and nothing else is our cornerstone. And all of this talk about unity seems impossible when we consider our own selfishness and the collective like sinfulness of all human nature. But that's where the gospel in this text comes out and is so important. Listen. Jesus invites us to be one as he is one with the Father and the Spirit. The Greek fathers um, had a word for this. It's really tough to explain. Well, it's impossible to explain the Trinity. But the Greek fathers had a, a word for this relationship. It's called perichoresis. Perichoresis. Peri means around. Around. 
And choresis is where we get our word choreograph, right? Choresis means dance. So dance around. I'm not a good dancer. I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, I'm not <laughs> the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit subsist together. They're the same stuff. They are completely the same stuff. They're equal. But they have this dance, this give and take. Give and take. The Father loves the Son so much that He trusts Him with the ultimate rescue mission in the universe, to rescue all of creation. He trusts the Son enough to, that He's going to obey Him. The Son loves the Father so much that He, he trusts Him. That it, it, it's all going to come out well, even though He's got to take on flesh. Go to the cross. Be separated from the Father. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. Is always working to bring glory to the Father and the Son. The Spirit doesn't even get a name, you guys. The same stuff, equal with God. Yet in the dance, the Spirit is the great servant. Always projecting glory on the Father and the Son. Listen to what D.A. Carson writes. The thought is breathtakingly extravagant. The unity of the disciples as, as it approaches perfection, that is its goal, serves not only to convince many in the world that Christ is the supreme focus of divine revelation, but that Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father and the Son. It gets better. Secure and content and fulfilled because they're loved by the Almighty Himself with the very same love he reserves for his only son. Carson finishes the statement like this. It's hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. I don't know if you just heard what I said. I had to think about this enough. Dancing God. <laughs> the ultimate community. Full, perfect harmony loves, lacks nothing, the triune God. And Jesus prays right before he dies that you and I would be part of that community. It gets even better. We're invited to dance with him, but we're not only invited to just receive this love. And that's pretty cool for a while. But then you get bored, and you want to do something with it. If you, when you experience the love of God, right, you can't just keep it in. This is the better part. Out of this dance relationship, we're sent out as co-lovers with God, with God's love. Sounds like theological mumbo-jumbo, right? Okay, consider these applications. I'm going to try and drive it home here. When you feel like your worship of God falls short, that you have nothing to give, which is like what, like most Sundays, right? Kind of drag yourself in here and, you know, it's okay sometimes. Sometimes you have an emotional experience. But, I mean, do we really feel like, oh, I'm just worshiping God perfectly? I never feel that way. So when you feel like your worship of God falls short or that you have nothing to offer, remember that the living God... Do the dance thing again. 
being perfectly worshipped all the time without you and me. The Father and the Son lifting up the Spirit. The Spirit and the Son lifting up the Father, loving the Father perfectly. The Father and the Spirit lavishing the Son with love and worship and adoration. It's going on all the time. You come in, you feel inadequate. You're not called to worship on your own. Check this out. Say, I'm a co-lover. Say, say it kind of like a rapper. I'm a co-lover. Come on, wake up. I'm a co So you're called to be, to join this dance, to be a co-lover of something that's already going on. Nothing in you, 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 don't, have to, you don't have to conjure this stuff up. This is good news. This is gospel. Because... You know, before you really get this, you think you got to do it on your own, even though you hear me jabber about grace and blah, blah, blah. People, we don't get grace. I don't get grace very well. I forget it when I walk out the door. But we're not called to do it on our own. We're called to co-love God with God. All right. So, when you're feeling inadequate, ask the Spirit to help you love Jesus and the Father more. Ask the Father, hey, Father, would you help me to love the Son and the Spirit more? Do you think He's going to say No. Okay. Still too heady to appear? Okay, check this out. Consider a personal relationship, all right? A spouse, a friend, a child, a co-worker, a brother and sister in Christ who's really tough to love. Know without a doubt that the God of the universe who exists in perfect perichoretic dancing unity love is already loving that person more than you ever could. Already loving that person and is inviting you not to put, conjure up this false mask of love or some kind of calling you to co-love that person with him. So you watch. I'm really mad at Jackie lately. Yeah, because Jackie does all this bad stuff. Jackie, I'm finding it really tough to love you, but I'm watching now. I've got my radar up. Remember how we've been talking about attentiveness? How's the spirit? How's the son? How's the father working in Jackie's life? How is God already loving Jackie? How could I join in? God's already loving Jackie maybe in uh, some stress she's having at work. And he's comforting her. He's, how could I come alongside and join in where something else is going on? So much better than me trying to have to make stuff up and conjure up in my own strength. It's not up to you alone. It's not up to you alone. Consider an addiction or a behavioral thing that's just beyond your control. Beyond your control, or maybe you just think it's beyond your control, but regardless. The living God is inviting you to dance, to co-love, to be part of the center of the universe, which, you know what that is in the center of the universe? It's a relationship. The one who spoke you into existence, who holds your atoms together right now, if you stop thinking about you, you would fall apart. Colossians 1 talks about Jesus holds all things hold together in him. This one with all that power is inviting you to come in and not take on the world yourself and not try and beat things on your own but to receive power to overcome. We can't achieve Christian unity by trying harder or being nicer or tolerating each other or ignoring sin. We move toward unity when we realize we're not only loved by the Father with the same love He loved the Son, but that He also invites us to join Him in loving each other and loving the world.
the triune God is inviting us to dance. You want to join him? Let's pray. Confess, Lord, I don't fully understand um, your prayer. I don't fully understand the magnitude even of the things that I've said. I'm still, still learning, and I'm a really bad dancer. And um, it's just amazing. It's mind-blowing that you... Um, part of the gospel is not just forgiveness of sin and eternal life, but it is this invitation to be intimate with you and to in some way be part of the work you're doing and part of the relationship you have. And I confess my own limitation, Lord, in being able to even articulate what I'm feeling and learning. And so I pray for your grace, Lord, for every one of us here. That where we need that touch of, of love, where we need that reassurance, where we need that power to overcome, that you would meet us there. And I take great, great rest in the fact that this isn't my prayer initially. This is your prayer. This is your prayer, Lord. Thank you for praying for us. Help us to take your hand and to join the dance. To learn to follow. To learn to be in step with you. And to be agents of your love. In this church and among other churches and throughout the world. Amen.